can be seated. <clears throat> we all have a deep desire to be cared for in a world that can so obviously be scary and dangerous. A child wants to be in the arms of his or her mom or dad whose love and care and provision and protection are a source of security and reassurance in the midst of the fears of this world. Those of us who have been blessed with healthy relationships with our parents know that nothing, even as we become adults, quite replaces their loving care in our lives. Something deep within each of us longs to be nurtured, to be held, to be provided for and protected. Even those who give the impression of being strong and independent and accomplished, they still know that they are vulnerable and weak and exposed. We're all a phone call or a knock at the door or a new virus away from things changing in ways that we don't want them to. The world is a dangerous place and we long to be protected, cared for, and provided for. The message of the scriptures and the good news that we proclaim week after week together as God's people in the church is that God is our protector and our provider and our ultimate caregiver. And the dominant metaphor in scripture that is used for this is one of the shepherd and his sheep. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 95, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This begins all the way back with Jacob, who at the end of his life remembers God in this way, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd, all my life to this day. That's Genesis 48 verse 15. As the Exodus deliverance is recounted by the psalmist in Psalm 78, he recounts it in this way, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. God was the shepherd of his people. And the shepherd-sheep relationship was an everyday part and dimension of Jewish life. God's people understood the perils of the sheep in the desert. They understood the constant, constant vigilance that was required of a shepherd and the responsibilities of a shepherd for leading and guiding, for provision, for protection from wolves and other wild animals and dangers. They understood the closeness of relationship between a shepherd and his sheep, particularly that the sheep would be very good at discerning and listening to the voice of the shepherd. Living in a post-agrarian society as we do, we don't get these things instinctively, of course, but the metaphor still works and works deeply. We understand the reality that sheep are relatively helpless and we can understand the idea of a shepherd who knows his sheep and feeds, leads, and protects his sheep in the context of a danger-filled wilderness. This is what God does for his people. Psalm 23, the most beloved of the Psalms, reminds us of this in an unforgettable way. It resonates so deeply with all of us. God provides for and comforts and protects his people. He is with us. We need not be afraid. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. These features that we read about that describe God and his relationship with his people are then applied as well to the leaders of God's people throughout scripture. It's interesting, Moses was an actual shepherd when he met God in the burning bush and was called to lead God's people. He was watching his father-in-law's flock out in the wilderness. 
And the scripture describes Moses as a shepherd, saying in Psalm 77, verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. When Moses is looking for a successor as his death approaches, he characterizes the one who would come after him as a shepherd in Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep without a shepherd. This would, of course, in that case, be Joshua, whose name is Jesus in Greek. And it's no surprise that Jesus quotes this text in Mark 6, observing that the great crowd before him were like sheep without a shepherd. David, of course, like Moses, was also a shepherd when he was anointed by Samuel the prophet to become king over Israel. This is how Psalm 78 speaks of him in verses 70 through 72. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So these dimensions of God's relationship to his people are then passed on to those who would lead God's people on God's behalf. But alongside these good examples, Israel was soon to be overrun with poor shepherds. At the beginning of Ezekiel 34, from which we read for our Old Testament reading, uh, it explains that those who looked after themselves first and did not care for the flock, these were poor shepherds, shepherds that deserved God's judgment. And from this dark place, as Israel longs for the day of renewal, the theme of shepherding comes to the foreground again. In the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then as we read in Ezekiel 34, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And then later in verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So the prophet Ezekiel writes about God being their shepherd and the servant David being their shepherd. There's kind of that question, well, which is it? And of course, Ezekiel 34 forms the most substantial background in terms of the Old Testament text for the text that we're looking at in the Gospel of John today, in John 10, verses 1 through 21. And when Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and repeats that in verse 14, that is clearly a fulfillment of what Ezekiel is longing for. The day when God would be the shepherd and the servant David, the Messiah King, would be the shepherd as well. And of course, in Jesus, these two become one. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That day has come. Now, as we explore this text, let's remember that we've just come out of the healing of the blind man in, in chapter 9. And there's no real break. So there's likely a, a motley crew around Jesus at this point of Pharisees, of those who are genuinely curious about Jesus but unsure, of true disciples of Jesus, and then even possibly the blind man himself is still here and listening. And Jesus seems to bring up the issue of shepherding. Yes, to say something significant and central about himself. 
but also to say something about the leaders of God's people. Remember what the Pharisees did to the blind man in chapter 9. In verse 34, they threw him out. This one who had encountered Jesus and who had spoken truthfully about Jesus, he was thrown out. And Jesus seems to want to say something about true and false shepherds over God's people. What is it that defines them? What defines leadership in the people of God, in the church of God? And we'll consider that first in verses 1 through 10. We all need to know what it means to what characterizes good shepherds in the flock of God. And then secondly, we'll look at Jesus himself in verses 11 and following and see what characterizes him and his ministry. And of course, these two things overlap. The basis of who shepherds are in the church is who the good shepherd is himself. So first, the characteristics of true shepherds and really any who are involved in the ministry of Jesus. These characteristics should define all of us who serve in his church and care for and lead others. The first characteristic is that shepherds enter the sheepfold by the door. We can think of the sheepfold as the church, the people of God, and the door as Jesus himself. Jesus tells us in verses nine, 7 and 9 that he is the door or the gate. So verse 1 says that he who does not enter into the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he, verse 2 continues, who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Really a shepherd of the sheep. There's no definite article there in front of shepherd. To these who come through the door, the gatekeeper opens, verse 3, and likely the gatekeeper could be Christ himself, as Augustine thought, or Augustine also suggested that we might understand the gatekeeper to be the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises will lead us into the truth, into Jesus. The point is that the only legitimate path to shepherding in God's flock is through Christ. And maybe that seems obvious, but again, we need to remember the context of the Pharisees who have just missed Jesus. They were so focused on their scripture-saturated religious system and their system of Sabbath adherence that they were blind to the one to whom all of the scriptures point, as Jesus says at the end of John 5, and blind to the physical healing of the blind man before their very eyes that had been done by Jesus himself. They miss Jesus. These were the thieves and robbers who climbed in by another way, not entering through the door of Christ. But those who would enter through the door, which is the first mark, and we'll point out four things here about shepherding. The first one here is entering through the door. That comes with it a necessary humility. It must mean an acknowledgement of our need. One of the questions that I routinely ask younger aspiring ministers over the, that I've asked over the years is, how have you been broken in your life? Essentially, how have you been brought to your knees so that you no longer trust in yourself or your own uh, resources or gifts, but you rely upon Christ solely and completely? To enter through the door is to let Jesus wash us. It is to admit our need of washing deeply as well. And it means that we are trusting in him and not in what he has given to us. Think of the blind man in chapter 9. His life was nothing before his encounter with Jesus. And now, what is he going to do? Is he going to trust his newfound ability to see? Or is he going to trust the one who gave him that new ability to see? 
to enter by the door is to trust Jesus. It is to believe into him in the words of the gospel according to John. And it is to trust in Jesus for that deep sense of being okay, of assurance, of life, whatever the circumstances may be in the present moment, being all right, because Jesus is our shepherd. The true shepherds enter through the door, Jesus says. And in verse 9, he says, those who enter through the door will be saved and they will go in and out and find pasture. There is peace, true peace, and genuine provision for any who enter through that door. There is life, an abundant life, in verse 10, for all who enter by the door. And all who enter there are humbled and quieted as a result. The second thing is the sheep know the shepherd's voice. The shepherd's voice is known. This is mentioned in verse 3 and again in verse 4. And then in verse 5 we're told that the sheep don't recognize the voice of the thieves or robbers or the strangers. So what is the voice of the shepherd? It is the voice that always points to the true shepherd. It is a Christ-centered voice shaped by the concerns of Jesus. It is the voice, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's that voice, that apostolic testimony voice, which is saturated with all that Jesus came to do and did and does now and still does in and through the Spirit in the church. Or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your, as servants, as your servants for Jesus' sake. It is the voice of John the Baptist, who says, I am not the Messiah, who says in chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. It is the voice of the blind man in the previous chapter, who continually told the truth about Jesus. He is a prophet. He healed me. He speaks truthfully about Jesus. This is the voice that the sheep know and hear and understand. It is a vibrant and living witness, a testifying to Christ that arises out of the scriptural data, the scriptural testimony from Old and New Testaments about Christ and all that he is. This is the voice that the sheep hear and know. Many years ago, I had the privilege of sharing Jesus with a highly educated young woman from Iran. She had come to Boston for a brief period to visit some of her friends. And one of her friends connected the two of us. And we were sitting at a coffee shop at, at a Starbucks in Back Bay. And I told her, and she had never heard the story before. I told her the story of the gospel from creation to new creation. With the central focus on the person of Jesus and on his cross and resurrection. And as she listened, she had tears well up in her eyes. And starts streaming down her face. She was shocked and overwhelmed at the picture of a God in Christ. Who would love and have compassion and care and concern for his world. Like Jesus did and showed us on the cross. She said it was unlike anything that she'd ever heard of in her Islamic upbringing. And this is what she was longing for. And this was a picture of the sheep knowing the voice of the shepherd, the voice of Jesus, the voice of the church that continually points to Jesus. That's what God's sheep long to hear about the God who made himself known in Jesus. And it's that voice that brings life 
and life and love and fruit to the heart of the church. If we start getting caught up in primarily non-essential issues and predicting end times, for example, or in the use of political power to accomplish kingdom ends, we begin to lose the voice of the shepherd. And it won't be long until the power leaves the church and until the sheep also leave as well because Jesus says the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The voice of the thieves and the robbers is anything is about anything other than Jesus. And though they promise life and it may look like life what all these other voices will promise they will really steal kill and destroy. Think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They seemed to promise life through a zealous following of the law and their tradition around it, but it was only crushing the life within. It was only excluding the very people that God wanted to embrace. One thinks, for example, about the massive self-help literature in our culture today, or about health or financial schemes that promise extraordinary results in very little time. Some of these things may have helpful nuggets, of course, but they are not the voices of the shepherd. And they will not bring life. They will only take it away. The third mark of true shepherds in the church is that they, is that they know their own sheep by name. Do we know those to whom God has called us to minister whom God has called us to shepherd. All of us I ask that question to. Because here is a picture of intimacy between sheep and shepherd. It's personal. It's about personal knowledge and care. It's about relationship. One commentator tells the story, quote, of hearing George Buttrick, the faithful 20th century Presbyterian pastor in downtown New York City, defend his frequent visitation of parishioners even in their downtown offices by citing a verse from this passage about the sheep. They will not listen to the voice of strangers, he said. True shepherding is personal. It isn't about data or trends or anonymous surveys. And I'm not saying that those things can't be helpful. By all means, they can be. But shepherding is about people. It's about their stories. About their names. And behind those names, all that they bear. In this world that is challenging and difficult as they walk through the wilderness. Vulnerable and exposed. The shepherd knows the sheep by name. Do you remember this one great shepherd, the good shepherd? whom we're about to look at more closely. Do you remember after his resurrection? He says, woman, why are you weeping? And he encounters Mary. And then there's that amazing moment where he just says her name, Mary. And up until that point, she couldn't see him. She couldn't recognize him. But when he says her name, she knows it's him. She knows that it's her Lord, her true shepherd. True shepherds know the sheep. I want to say that my hope is that for everyone at Park Street Church who calls this home, this, their local church, is that every one of us would be known by one of our shepherds. There'd be a personal relationship, a knowing of your name and your story. It's easy for us in the modern world where we run fast paced, it's easy for us in a, a church in Boston in the, city of the, in the center of the city that's scattered across greater Boston, it's easy for us to remain alone, to remain isolated, to remain unknown. 
And church and, and life and growth in, in, in the kingdom of God is not just about consumption of content or sitting on a back pew, but it's about relationship and being known. And Jesus says this is the third mark of shepherding. Shepherd know the names of their sheep. I long for that to be true here among us. And then the fourth point about shepherding that I want to make is that shepherds lead their sheep. Verse 3, the shepherd leads them out. And verse 4, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. True shepherds lead their flock. They lead those whom they've been called to serve in their ministries. They walk in front and not lag behind. And I, I quite honestly don't think that this primarily means strategic vision in the church. Though, of course, that's not unimportant. But I think this means that shepherds lead and get out in front in following the way of Jesus, in walking on the way of the cross, in embodying Christ's likeness to the people of God, in modeling forgiveness and truthfulness and compassion and prayer and care. When Peter writes about shepherding in 1 Peter 5, he says that elders are to be examples to the flock. And Paul tells the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. True shepherds are out in front, walking in the way of Jesus. All of this, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is the ideal for which we should all aim. As God gives us people to shepherd in our lives. But true shepherds are to emulate the one true shepherd. And now we switch to the character of Jesus here. The, the good shepherd in verses 11 and following. Where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, and this is the primary feature. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He had said in verse 10 that he has come to bring life. That we might have life and have it abundantly. That's his aim. That's what he came to do. That's what he continues to do even today as he reigns and rules at the Father's right hand. He comes to bring life and to bring it that we might have it abundantly. Well, how does this happen? How do we get life? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. This is the defining act of shepherding and the people in the flock of God. It is the loving act of laying down one's life. It is again the cross here. So what is it that defines good shepherding? What is it that defines our good shepherd? It is this wonderful climactic act in his life of self-giving and self-offering at the cross that he gave himself to the greatest degree possible. And it's this that reveals the nature of his life as the good shepherd and of his kingdom as well. He will go on to say in chapter 15, greater love has no one than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest love that one can have to give one's life and this is exactly what Jesus does for his sheep laying down his life is repeated multiple times in the 10 verses or so that follow verse 11 because here we come to the heart of what Jesus came to accomplish this is the hour for which he has come the whole gospel is built around the hour it is the hour of his death the hour of his being lifted up on the cross and this should focus and clarify the voice of the shepherds of the church today. It is not only Christ-centered, but it is cross-shaped, this voice that we bring into the world. Remember what Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and what? And him crucified. 
we focus upon the cross. And Jesus seems to be making that point here. Through his substitutionary death, sin will be dealt with and we will be reconciled to God. Remember what John the Baptist, another faithful shepherd, proclaims in chapter 1. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next day, behold, the Lamb of God. John is pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus that takes our place in order that we might have genuine life. This is what marks him as the good shepherd. He gives his life for us that we might truly live. His death, of course, uniquely and unrepeatably deals with sin, the sin of the world, in such a way that those who simply believe in him, this is the message of the gospel according to John, who yield their life to his authority, they are reconciled to God. They are rescued from sin and evil and death itself. It's a joyous reality that comes to us at the great cost of Jesus' own life. But he does it for our sake, for yours and for mine. This is why he came. And Jesus then contrasts in verses 12 and 13 the central feature of who he is, of what marks him as the good shepherd, with the hired hands in verses 12 and 13. The hired hand is in it for himself or herself. He or she doesn't care about the sheep. It's about the, their image or comfort or even their wages. Instead of sacrificing for the sheep, the hired hand will probably exploit the sheep to get what he or she wants. To lift up his or her own name to profit and reputation or financially or otherwise. And I know this may seem egregious, but it is all too common. What is it that the hired hand will not do? It is essentially that the hired hand is not willing to do the hard work of love in the way of Jesus. To avoid or step away from or shy from the demands of love for the sake of comfort or out of fear or vanity or ambition. Jesus says the hired hand does not care for the sheep. He only cares for himself. And so when danger comes, when the wolves come, the sheep are left exposed because the hired hand runs away and the sheep are, or the, the sheep are snatched by the wolf and scattered. Gregory the Great said that the work that the hired hand wouldn't do is to console the hurting. There's something so significant about this. I mean, when Jesus comes into the world as the good shepherd, he spends time with the people that everyone else overlooked. That the religious insiders didn't have the time of day for. And Gregory the Great says, look, this is what, this is what the hired hand won't do. But of course, the true shepherd does this. Cares for and consoles those who are hurting and wounded. Those whom the world has written off. Augustine has an interesting take. He says that the hired hand is the one who will not rebuke the sheep when they're in sin. He seems to think that speaking the truth in love is what a true shepherd will do. And certainly that work, which is uncomfortable, is not something that a hired hand would do. The hired hand, when things get tough, walks away. They avoid the hard things because they don't care. Whereas Jesus lays his life down, pours himself out completely. Paul actually models this well in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15. He says, I would gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
He wants to be poured out as well like Jesus was poured out. And this is the mark of Christian ministry and shepherding is to be poured out. All of us in a loving self-giving that will produce life in the hearts of the sheep. So two other observations about Jesus. That was the first and longest of the three. But the second is Jesus knows his sheep and they know him. This again speaks of an intimacy and a genuine knowing of a similar kind to how Jesus says, the father knows me and I know the father. That's astonishing, by the way. Jesus is saying, my relationship to my sheep is going to be like the father's relationship to me. And that's incredible. They've been related for all eternity in a community of love. And he says, I'll know my own sheep in that way as well. Last week, we saw that Jesus sees us and heals us and finds us. And this week, we see that Jesus knows us. However isolated or alone you might feel in the midst of this pandemic that I know continues to drag on longer and longer than any of us ever would have imagined. In the midst of, the, in the midst of this long and, or short but dark and cold month of February, Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you. He knows your fears, your joys. He knows the challenges that you're facing this week. He knows you. There's no greater privilege than to be known by Jesus. And then third, Jesus says about his own character as the good shepherd. He says he's got to bring sheep in who are not of this fold. He must, he says. It is necessary. Those out in the world who belong to him before they have been brought to him, in the words of Leon Morris. This is a great statement about Jesus and about the church that proclaims him. A statement that foreshadows his ministry through the spirit-led, spirit-empowered apostles and the church that they form. The ongoing witness to Jesus, the Christ-centered, cross-focused voice that continues to press into the world here in Boston and around the globe is one that is seeking the sheep who are out there, who already belong but haven't yet been brought to him. I have many people in this city, he said to Paul. And Jesus' fulfilling of this must in verse 16 is happening now through the Christ-centered voice of all of us as we go out and bear witness to him. Those who tell of his person and his cross. And Jesus does this outside the fold. Remember, the blind man had just been healed. He was the beggar, the blind beggar in the temple precincts that everybody walked by. No one had the time of day for. I wonder where today are those margins, those places outside the fold, where actually there are people who belong to Jesus, that he's longing for us to go out and shepherd them home, to bring them back, to be the good shepherd who seeks the lost and brings them back. Jesus says, as this work happens, there will be one flock and one shepherd in verse 16. And we confess with the church throughout history that there is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And this church has one true head whose name is Jesus. One chief shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays his life down for the sheep. This shepherd defines what leadership and authority look like in the church. And it's an upside-down definition. You know the rulers of the Gentiles, Jesus says, who lord it over. But not so. I am among you, he says, as one who serves. His shepherding looks like caring, knowing, and seeing, and finding, and healing the sheep out on the margins, out in other folds that need to be brought home. We started with the observation about the fact that we all desire to be nurtured. And we do. 
The reality is, is that we live in a very broken world. And many of us have not experienced this kind of nurture and care. Perhaps our relationship with our parents may have been deeply flawed and, and fractured. And I, I know that's the story of so many. And we've also had far too many examples of shepherds in the church who have hurt, failed, and disillusioned us. One high-profile example of that in the past few weeks that has been devastating. And we may wonder, well, where, where can we turn? How can we trust? And I want us to remember that there is one shepherd in the church. One shepherd who will never, ever let us down. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek after the one. He is the shepherd who will seek the lost, bring back the strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. He is the shepherd who leads us beside still waters, who helps us to lie down in green pastures, who even while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we won't have to be afraid because he's present, he is with us, and he knows us by name. He is the good shepherd who so deeply wants you to have life that he surrendered his own life that you might come to the fullness of life in him. He sees you and he won't let you go. Jesus is the good shepherd. May we walk with him. May we serve in his name. May we point everyone in our city and in our world to him. Let's pray.